Reflections on the Gospel of John Narrated by Gil Bailey and produced by the Cornerstone Forum Part 8 And Yahweh said to Moses, In order to rectify the situation, I want you to impale all the leaders of Israel in the sun before everybody. Now Moses giving every indication that he's going to carry out the orders explicitly, turns to his people and says to them, put to death all those who committed the crime. The crime was the apostasy of bowing down before the pagan god. No mention in the text, that, no explicit mention of what is obvious, which is that Moses has backed away from Yahweh's command. In other words, you get in this literature a tendency to move in the direction of, of, of a more just application of the sacrificial system. The first one was completely arbitrary. That is to say, the leaders of Israel were not the ones that had bowed down before the, the gods. They had allowed it to happen. I suppose that would be their, their source of culpability. And they have responsibilities. So Yahweh says, Yahweh, well, we have to imagine. Who's Yahweh? Well, the story is simply telling us how these things unfold. Yahweh says they must all be impaled. Moses reinterprets it in a slightly juster way, and that is to say, why don't we just punish the ones who did it? Okay? So all of those who bowed down will now be punished. Now this is, this is more just, but it's also more violent because a whole lot of people did it, and there are only so many leaders. So here you get the, the, one of the many, many, many double binds that are created when you begin to back away from the sacrificial system. You know, the sacrificial system is very, when it's working well, is, uh, it, it's, it's a great minimizer of violence. Caiaphas, in, in the late Bronze Age, Caiaphas could have gotten the Nobel Peace Prize when he said it's better that one should die than the whole nation should be destroyed. It's a tremendous... It's the economy of violence. The sacrificial system is, is economical in, in its use of violence. But unfortunately, or fortunately or whatever, unfortunately, I guess, you, have to be, you have to be under the spell of its justifying myth in order for it to work. And then it is true that one death, for instance, the death of Akon, uh, can, can save a, a society from cr- falling apart from falling into civil war, say. Well, here's a situation where Moses says, no, we're going we're to insist on justice. We're only going to punish the ones, well, half the population maybe has been bowing down to Akon. So now you have a civil war. Instead of, instead of impaling 12 leaders, you're going to have, because that's too arbitrary, we're going to have a civil war and half the people are going to be killed. You see the irony and paradox you get into when you start moving away from the system? Well, I think there's something... This is what Gerard calls a text in travail. Well, as this is being announced, people are weeping at the tent of meeting. And at that moment, an Israelite man and his Moabite wife, or concubine, walk past on their way to the marriage tent or to uh, some rendezvous in an alcove. The Hebrew for alcove is a pun on the word for groin. Uh, 
uh, Phineas is full, filled with zeal. He grabs a lance, he follows them into the alcove, and he runs them both through in the groin. And Yahweh says, Phineas has acted with my zeal. And because of his great zeal, he has turned my wrath away. Now, this is very interesting. In other words, what the sacrificial system does is that it moves that wrath around until it tries, until it can find an outlet for it that is morally uh, unproblematic and that is socially effective in generating, in restoring some kind of social or cultural uh, identity. And, of course, we don't know the details of this. This is a piece of literature. But it's very important to see the movement away from the completely arbitrary nature of Yahweh's injunction, Moses' attempt to be just, but a, a justice that would be bringing its way far more bloodshed, and Phineas's uh, move, which is also arbitrary in many ways. I mean, they just happen to walk by, but in, on the other, uh, on another level, they they, they are uh, a glaring instance of this of this kind of uh, uh, commingling of the cultures that was at the heart of the problem. Well, what I want to point I want to make by that story and by the next one really is that from within inside the sacrificial system the only thing people could ever hope to do and I think this is this is the case almost exclusively in the Hebrew literature not entirely but almost and that is the only thing they could hope to do is to redirect the sacrificial appetite toward victims that were more morally culpable, more socially expendable, and fewer in number, and thereby use the sacrificial system as economically as they could. But at the same time, this is a people who are growing aware of the fact that there is an arbitrary nature to the sacrificiality upon which they rely. They, after all, are the people who tell us that they drew lots to find out who had violated the ban at Jericho. And we see, if we read this text carefully, we see the slippage that takes place between Yahweh's command, Moses' idea, and what Phineas does. So this is just a revisitation to this anthropological issue that we've talked about here before. Both those stories I've talked about in the past. I now want to talk about another one that I haven't talked about in the past, and I came upon it the honest way. It was in the le it was the lectionary reading, in the lectionary reading for Monday the fifth week of Lent. This story from Daniel thirteen was the first reading, and the and the story of the woman caught in adultery in John was the gospel reading. And on the basis of this discovery and some others recently, I'm, I, I, I'm going to begin to take much more care. I've always been a great fan of the lectionary arrangements, but I'm going to take much more care with it because I now realize that somehow the Holy Spirit was hovering over the, uh, the, the creation of the lectionary uh, in a very important way. And I have no idea what the, 
you know, the lectionary may have been created the way they say, you know, sausages are created. If you like them, you don't want to see them being made. Well, I don't know about that. But the point is, there it is, and it, it has some amazing things in it. And as far as, and the more I thought about this story, the more I realized that, that the people who put the, the lectionary together were, had, had, a, had a sense of what was going on in, in the gospel text that, that, is, that is astonishing. One could go to Rudolf Schnockenberg or Raymond Brown and read dozens and dozens of pages of commentary on the woman caught in adultery. Or one could go to the lectionary and read Daniel 13. And I think we should no doubt do both, obviously. But I think if we had to choose between the two, I think we should stick with the lectionary because there's something absolutely incredible about it. So... I hope that's not building this up more than I, than is justified, but I don't think it is. So here's the story in Daniel 13. It's in Babylon during the exile. There's a man named Joachim. He married Susanna, who, who was very, very beautiful. But we should... By the way, this is very novelistic. This story is very novelistic. Uh, so we have to almost read it as a novel. Now, the first thing we want to notice, she's very beautiful. Don't fall for that. Uh, it is not fundamentally her beauty. That's a part of what's going on, but it's only a part of what's going on. But she was very beautiful. Joachim, then we get to the heart of it. Joachim was very rich. He had a garden surrounding his house, which was a symbol, was like having a, you know, a Rolls Royce. And the Jews would often visit him since he was held in greater respect than any other man. That's the key. He was at the top of the social pyramid. Now, that is no problem for people who are the average people down here looking up to such a paragon of virtue. You have to remember now, in, 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 in this time, uh, worldly success was a, was, a, was a sign of God's favor. So this man is to be admired in all ways. Okay, we don't have any of the stuff that the, any of the suspicion of wealth that's generated by the prophets and the and the um, and, and the gospels at work in this story, at least. Or do we? Uh, that's another question. But f- for the moment, let me just say, if Joachim is there on his pinnacle, social pinnacle, and we are on in the valley looking up at him. There can be no problem in this society of us, of us resenting his, his social prominence or so, whatever, because we're too far removed. He is in the nature of the, of the Olympians, you see. But then the next sentence says, two elderly men had been selected from the people that year to act as judges. And these men now, are not on the valley floor. They're halfway up the pinnacle. They are prominent members of the community who, to whom all litigation must be submitted. They're very powerful and very prominent. And there are two of them. There's a kind of structure here that's marvelous. And so they are in a position. You know, Shakespeare is full of this. Shakespeare is full of this. As one gets closer to the object, who, to the to the potential rival, the rivalry intensifies, so that it's those who are closest to Caesar 
or whoever it is, who fall into this intense rivalry with him. And those who are further removed are, are spared that. So we have these judges. On the other hand, right after we have the judges, the text says, of such men the Lord said, quote, wickedness has come to Babylon through the elders and judges posing as guides to the people. So there is two levels of resentment in this story. The people, that's just say the people on the valley floor, the metaphor I'm using, the people resent the judges, the judges resent Joachim. Or let's say the people envy and resent the judges, the judges envy and resent Joachim. There is a hint here in this story of a kind of, uh, the beginning of a process that Ulysses describes in Troilus and Cressida when he says, the generals disdained by him one step below, he by the next, that next by him beneath, so every step exampled by the first that is sick of his superior grows to an envious fever of pale and bloodless emulation. There is a little hint of this. I don't want to overplay it. Back to the two men that are judges. They are often at Joachim's house, engaged in settling litigation until noon. At noon, everybody goes home. And at noon, Susanna comes and walks in her garden. The two elders do not go home. They linger around afternoon, watching Susanna uh, every day as she came to walk in her garden, and, quote, gradually they began to desire her. Now, again, we have to remember her connection to Joachim and this whole arrangement in order to understand this desire. Now, the whole question that Shakespeare deals with in Trolls and Cressida about Helen, you know, what is Helen? Uh, what, is it really her beauty? Or is it her, you see, so there's that kind of thing going on. And so that's the ancient Greek uh, parallel. The modern parallel is that passage from uh, from uh, Death of a Salesman where Hap Loman tells his brother, well, you know, um, that girl I was out with tonight, I've, she's engaged to the vice president of the store and I've, I've ruined her. And, he, and then he says at the end, he's the, he's the third executive I've done that to. There is that kind of using the the, the sexual thing as, as part of this competition. Okay, here's where it really gets novelistic. Both the elders were inflamed by the same passion, but they hid their desire from each other. In the same way that when we step up to the sale table, we, we're careful not to reach for the thing. If there are other people around, there's only one of the thing we want. We're careful to be subtle about our until we really have hold of it, you see, and can walk away with it. But we don't want to sort of lead anybody else to think that it's desirable by picking it up and looking at it and then putting it down again because we know that it'll be gone next time we reach for it. Exactly that same way. Both were inflamed by the same passion, but they hid their desire from each other. You see, this story doesn't reveal everything. There's clearly, if we, if we want to reconstruct the whole story, clearly their, their, the identity of their passion is dependent upon one another. They have played a mimetic role with each other in the generation of this passion. That sounds like I'm fabricating it, but all you have to do is read any, almost any 19th century novel to find out that that's the case. Okay, this is, by the way, what Girard calls hypocrisy. That is to say, to hide some part of one's desire so as not to trigger more competition than you need. You need a little bit in order to get the desire going, but you don't want to trigger the kind of competition that could really just ace you out, you see. So it's what Girard calls hypocrisy is the use 
is the, is the discrete manifestation of one's desire so that you, you suggest it enough so that there will be a little bit of competition. You will awaken a desire for the same uh, object in others so that there'll be just enough competition so you'll still feel the passion, but not awaken it so much or in the presence of one who's capable of carrying off the prize and leaving you standing there with nothing. So, so it's a very delicate thing how we reveal our desires to others. Shakespeare, again, Shakespeare is full of this thing where one friend, they, people grow, grow up, childhood friends, they've always been the best of friends, and they share everything, and they share their, and one tells the other one how much he or she loves somebody else, and automatically this other person begins to love. And so, pretty soon the person who shared that information is left out because the other two lovers go off. This, this pattern repeats itself all the time. So that they both desire her, and they both are cagey about expressing it. One day, ha having parted, this is, it gets comic. One day, having parted with the words, let's go home, it's time for the midday meal, they went off in different directions, only to retrace their steps to find themselves face to face again. <laughs> See, that's fabulous. Obliged to explain, that is to say, they had to come clean. They admitted their desire. Now, well, they admitted their desire and agreed to look for an opportunity of surprising her alone. Now, something very sinister happens at this moment. And it, again, it is part of the structure. They desire this woman, and they both, as you notice, try to uh, satisfy that desire to the exclusion of the other. But once they both recognize that they have the same desire precisely and that they're on the verge of trying to satisfy it, then they have a choice. They must either renounce it or become rivals. There's only one other alternative to those two choices, and that is to sacrifice the object of their desire which is what they decide to do. They decide to satisfy their desire sexually, no doubt. But at this point, it is uh, the satisfaction of that desire will lead to the, to the social denigration of the object of desire. <coughs> they will turn her into a slut, you say, to use modern jargon. Uh, this is, unfortunately, I must say, this is the kind, this, there's, the, there, there's a sort of, this is not something that has disappeared from human history, this phenomenon. They retain their friendship only by sacrificing the object of desire. So, for instance, uh, in, uh, sometimes you pick up a paper and you read something, uh, something's going on, you read, Looting and burning. Well, looting is satisfying this mimetic, frenetic desire, and burning is destroying what might satisfy. Or you, or you see the phrase, raping and killing. This is the perverse thing that happens when the violence and resentment and rivalry contaminates the desire and produces these perversions. And I think these two, you, you have it here in embryo when it says now they are conspiring together to satisfy their desire, but not in any 
way that they might have before. Now they will ruin her. Suzanne com comes into bay, dismisses her servants. They, they uh, uh, approach her and they say, if you don't give in to our desires, we will accuse you of, of, uh, of infidelity with a younger man. And she decides she'd rather die than give in to him. She screams and they scream and they say, he's getting away. This is very Shakespearean. It's like, oh, there he goes. We didn't catch him. You know, the whole thing. I mean, Shakespeare should have used this as one of his uh, themes. You know, it's marvelous. And so they put her on trial. And they, after all, the judges, and she's condemned to be stoned to, je to death because the, these prominent judges have condemned her. Now, lest we think more of Daniel than... I'm all for thinking highly of Daniel because he does something very important here but we also have to put it into context she's condemned when she's condemned she accepts her condemnation with such grace that the all the people begin to weep so this is not that kind of solid unanimity that we got with the stoning of Akon you see these are people weeping for this victim of justice apparent justice and then she cried out at the last minute she'd been taken off to be killed. Eternal God, you know all secrets and everything. Therefore, before it happens, you know that they have given false evidence against me. The, in other words, the victim's voice shouts out, and it's heard by God. The Lord heard her cry as she was being led away to die. He roused the Holy Spirit residing in a young man named Daniel. In other words, what is the Holy Spirit? It is Yah, it's God hearing the cry of the victim, awakening something in the, in the heart of another person who heard the cry. You know, in the, John, John's Gospel, the word paraclete, which is the Holy Spirit, paraclete literally means the lawyer for the defense. So, the paraclete is the force of biblical revelation that is changing human anthropology because it is making us uh, awaken to the voice of the victim and what it means. So I don't want to take anything away from Daniel, but remember now, this was all the people were already weeping about this, uh, the tragedy of her condemnation. But at any event, the, the Holy Spirit awakens in Daniel's breast and he says... I shouts out, I am innocent of this woman's death. Suddenly everything stops. All eyes turn to Daniel. And it says, at that, all people turn to him and ask, what do you mean by these words? And then it says, standing in the middle of the crowd. So by shouting out that, Daniel has reformed the crowd, or else he has stepped into the middle of the crowd next to Susanna, but he has put himself in the position of the victim, in the middle of the crowd. He has put himself in the position of, uh, of, uh, of the sacred. That is to say, if he pulls it off, he could become king. If he doesn't, he could become the victim. Now, fortunately, this is not a crowd whose sacrificial appetites have been very awakened. Yet, so far, they're going to kill Susanna because that's what the law of Moses said. But they don't feel good about it. 
okay? What happens if they kill Susanna and they don't feel good about it? That is the sacrificial system backfiring. If they kill Susanna and they don't feel good about it, they have misgivings about it, then somebody's going to say, who, who threw the first stone? Who got that started? Why did we do that? Acrimony, division, rancor inside this. This is the, I'm just not talking about this morally, but structurally. Daniel stands in the middle and he says, they say to him, what are you saying? And he says, they have, these elders have given false witness. Immediately they see a possibility. It's, it's all as though the crowd sees a possibility. They say to him, you uh, obviously have uh, the wisdom of the elders, so we're going to make you the elder. Remember now, he's standing in the middle of the crowd. If you pull it off, you can become king. And if you don't, you can become the victim. The king, the business of the king is to choreograph the sacrificial violence. And the business of the, of the victim is to suffer it. But both do it from the middle of the circle to begin, begin with. Uh, so he stands there. And they come to him and say, okay, now you be the elder. And you make the decision for us, the righteous decision. He says, fine, separate the two guys, bring them to me one at a time. They come in. And he condemns them before he asks them any question. And there's, there's resentment of, against these people already. You can tell that there's a social resentment already against these people. When Daniel condemns the second man, he, he says to him, he calls him spawn of Canaan, not of Judah. In other words, he, whatever this man's lineage might be, he was settling cases for the Jews, so this is... It's clear that he was, he was probably an, uh, an Israelite, that is to say a, a northern uh, Jew from the, from the northern kingdom. And Judah, the southern kingdom, always regarded itself as the true Jewish world, you see. So he's, he's being, these two, or the second of these two elders is being cast into this sort of cultural limbo, you see. You're probably a northern Jew and you probably caved into the Canaanite ritual yourself. Spawn of Canaan, not of Judah. See, it's an it's a ethnic slur. And, it, and he does this publicly. And it's part of what gives rise to the story. Now the story, we have the story in the Bible as a story of justice, awakening of this zeal in Daniel. And I think that's an okay, pl I'm not trying to deconstruct that part, that version of the story but there's the thing to learn from this is that all that has happened is that the sacrificial appetite has simply been uh, more finely drawn and more focused on uh, 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 objects of contempt that could be sacrificed or expelled in ways that would be morally acceptable and socially useful and then he says Okay, you say she slept with the, you say that he, she, she was having sex with this young man under a tree. What tree? And the first one says, well, the mastic tree. He says, you're going to be cut in half because of that. He sent him away. Send the other one in. Okay, you say they were under a tree. What tree? He says, an oak, an oak tree. Okay, there you have it. There you have it. And then it simply says, Daniel said, the angel of God is waiting with a sword to drive home and split you and destroy the pair of you. Then 
the whole assembly shouted, praising God, turned on the two elders and put them to death. Now here is again the irony of this situation. Remember the, the Midrash which said, if all think he's guilty, he must be innocent. Now, clearly, these two men, I mean, we have to, we, we, we can't completely doctor the story. These two men, the story tells us, lied. We have to go along with the story. We're, we can't abandon that. They're more morally culpable than Susanna. Susanna's not morally culpable at all. But, the, but, the, but Susanna, as a victim, could not generate that kind of social unanimity. People were weeping when they thought she was going to die. But when the crowd turned on her accusers, they fired this tremendous zeal, and they became a community again. And they killed him and restored order and lived happily ever after, you see. So even though at a moral and legal level they are more culpable, at a structural level they are more innocent. Not because they're... In see, this is what makes these words difficult to use. Not because they're innocent, but because the mechanism that produced their death was a mimetic mechanism that had little to do with their moral culpability. You don't generate that kind of complete unanimity based on, moral, based on judicial reason. And then the next line in the text says, from that day onward Daniel's reputation stood high among the people. So political prestige, social and political prestige that comes from having stepped in and redirected the sacrificial system toward more expendable uh, victims whose expulsion or victimization could generate genuine social solidarity. And therein lies, and all of these things I'm telling you about, there is a kind of paradox that ought, ought to give us all some sense of humility about how this system works. Notice in the story of Daniel that what Daniel does is that he turns the, uh, he finds as his victim the accusers. And I think this is the supreme point of this story. That there is, if Gerard is correct, that the, that the biblical text as a whole moves in the direction of rehabilitation of victims, there comes a moment when the victim's uh, voice and the victim's plight is sufficiently felt uh, so that the only way in which the victimization scenario can be played out is as is with uh, former victimizers as its victim. In other words, we can only use the victimary system against victimizers. There's only one accusation that will really stick because we, we somehow begin to realize that what we must do is protect the victim. So the only person we can vent our sacrificial lust on is a victimizer. This is, this is what popular entertainment has been doing for centuries. It whets the sacrificial appetite and it toys with it and teases it until Act 5. 
and then it satisfies it. And this is what box big box office movies still do. It's how, it's how we think and feel. And in every case, I would say in every case since, since you know, the 16th century, the only, the only person we can enjoy victimizing in Act 5 is a former victimizer. Now, what does this mean? It means that the accused is the accuser. I use that word because the Satan, Satan means, the word Satan means the accuser. Now what happens when the only person we can accuse is the accuser? That's what happened in Daniel 13. We could only really accuse the accuser. That means that we're in a situation where Satan is casting out Satan. Satan is casting out Satan. In Mark 2, Jesus says, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot last. Now, if Satan has rebelled against himself and is divided, he cannot stand either. It is the end of him. And if you take Satan as the accusatory principle, that is, there is a tremendous anthropological insight in that passage. We are now in a situation... That in a way, the Bible is saying we will, you, you will eventually get in a situation where you can only use the accusatory or satanic power by directing it towards the f accusers. And thereby, thereby you will be using, the, you will be accusing them of accusing, and the whole thing will begin to have a, 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 a loop process. It will come back on you. Accusers accusing accusers of accusing accusers. And the whole thing will begin to ex the 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 the, the uh, artificiality of the whole system will be exposed, and the, and it will begin to collapse. And I think that's that is precisely the world we're in today. The reason for doing all that was to to try to show that what happens in this little story about the woman caught in adultery is something that is not an act of Jesus's kindness or sensitivity or whatever it no doubt was that in the life of the historical Jesus but what it is in the gospel tradition is something completely revolutionary and so I hope with that background that, that we just had we can understand it better here's the story at daybreak Jesus appeared in the temple again and the people came to him and he sat down and began to teach. So he's there teaching and the scribes and Pharisees brought a woman along who had been caught committing adultery. Now you'll notice right away, of course, that they didn't bring the man along. In order to be caught committing adultery, there has to be a man somewhere in the vicinity. And, of course, he's not brought along. Now, this is an obvious injustice. But had she been let alone and he been brought along, it would have, the story wouldn't have changed. Had they both been brought along, the story wouldn't have changed. So that injustice, although significant 
in social life is pretty much insignificant in terms of the story. The point is they have someone who is uh, against whom they have a righteous claim according to the law of Moses. The law of Moses says a woman caught in adultery shall be stoned. So they bring her along. And it says they made her stand in the middle in full view of everyone. It's important again structurally to see that she is in the center of the circle. And they said to Jesus, Master, this woman was caught in the very act of committing adultery. And Moses has ordered us in the law to condemn a woman like this to death by stoning. What have you to say? Well, and it, then it says, they ask him this to t as a test, looking for something to use against him. Well, clearly, it would not be a test if they expected him to say stoner. So even Jesus' opponents had understood his message clearly enough so that they fully expected him to say not stoner. But they thought they had a good case because if he, could, if he said don't stoner, he would be contradicting Moses. And to contradict Moses would be to, to uh, become a heretic. So it was a pretty good ploy, actually. As the Passion story shows so clearly, uh, a, a human crowd uh, in the grip of a sacrificial mandate is the most formidable force in human cultural life. The regent, the priest, the king must find some way, as the Passion story indicates so clearly, must find some way to accede to the crowd's demand for a victim without openly declaring his subservience to the mob. Herod, in the case of John the Baptist, Pilate, in the case of Jesus, face a situation where they do not want to accede to this victimization, and they look for an alternative to it, particularly Pilate. Pilate offers an interesting alternative. We'll talk about this later, but he offers Barabbas. Well, Barabbas, you see, has already been condemned. In other words, he's, he is an official... Uh, he, he's been officially condemned. He's legally condemned already. In a way, to, to throw them Barabbas would be to, to accede to the mob's demand, but to still stay within the bounds of the legal arrangement and not to and not to openly declare one's, uh, one's uh, subservience to the mob. Well, this is a situation where here stands a woman accused of a crime that everybody knows must be punished by, by stoning. And what are you going to do? Now, there's little indication that these scribes and Pharisees have worked up some kind of intense sacrificial appetite. But I think we can, we can read a little of that into the story in terms of how Jesus reacts. He does something that's enigmatic, has remained enigmatic. He bends down and starts writing with his finger in the ground. In other words, he, he creates a gap 
so that the, there's a kind of momentum, there's a sort of social momentum that comes up and ask him the question. And he could say yes, and the social momentum might run right on. He could say no, and the social momentum might run right on. Yes or no don't, doesn't matter. Either one would do. A sharp yes or no, either one would be scandalous. The social momentum could gobble up either one of those responses and move on. But he creates a gap that's neither. And so later on, the, the, Jesus' uh, opponents say, how long are you going to keep us in suspense? There's a, there's a sense of that here in this story. He just doesn't answer. He doodles in the ground. It doesn't matter what he's doodling in the ground. But I think the most important point is the gap. They persisted with their questions. He raised up or stood up or looked up. It's not quite clear from the Greek. And said, If there is one of you who has not sinned, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Now, this verb, which means to stand up or look up or raise up, a friend of mine who's a biblical scholar says that there is an etymological implication in this verb of what we would be translated, he looks off. It is to look up, but in the sense of looking up to heaven. Uh, one, it's, uh, and, and my friend says, there is in this verb the intention to avoid looking into the eyes of one's inquisitor. I don't know about that, but I, I think that's an interesting hint. Because again, if one comes with this question, yes or no, where do you stand? And you lock gazes with them, it doesn't matter. You can say you can agree with them or you can contradict them. It doesn't, but if you lock in, the social vortex goes right on and either appropriates your volition or overrides it because it's scandalized by it. And I think in both of these gestures, the idea of bending down and doodling in the ground and then looking up in the sense of looking off, not engaging the inquisitors directly, not becoming a partisan in that structural sense, I think it's very important as a way of breaking the spell. And then he uses what really is a, a variation on the mosaic theme. In the Law of Moses, the two accusers would be the first to throw stones. So Jesus has taken that idea of who's the first to throw stones. He's narrowed it down to one, and he said it should be the one who has no sin. He's changed it. But it's familiar enough. This is how the gospel changes and remains the same. It's familiar enough. It carries over the feeling and tonality of the Mosaic law, but completely uh, reverses it. Though he who has no sin, let him cast the first stone. And then he bent down and wrote on the ground again. Again, this sense of trying to, in a, in a way, step out of the way. The, the, the scribes and Pharisees come ready to focus all this on him, you see. 
They have a, a certified victim uh, in their grasp, and they're going to shove that certified victim under Jesus' nose, and if they get the right response, they're going to turn him into one. You see, it's all coming like that. And he steps aside, looks aside, doodles in the ground, and simply says as though to, you know, nobody in particular, let he who has no sin cast the first stone. And, and the spell is broken. He sits to write again in the dirt, and it says, when they heard this, they began going away one by one, beginning with the eldest. One by one, beginning with the eldest. Now, it's probably appropriate that it begins with the eldest because uh, younger people are perhaps less likely to recognize their own funny business. After you live a while, you know, you understand your own complicity in these things perhaps better. So the elders would be the ones to recognize it. There's a, there's a little bit of humor, I must say, a little bit of satire almost in this elders leaving first. But there's an important point here, and I must say uh, once again that uh, Girard has, uh, has put his finger on it in a way that you just don't see this in a lot of the biblical scholarship that you read about the New Testament. Girard makes the following point. I should say this is part of a, a about a month ago or so, uh, Rene gave a little paper on this story and as I did he mostly dealt with other things but when he got to the story he made the following point I think it's very interesting the first person to walk away performs a moral act performs a, an act of moral emancipation, you could say. The second person to walk away performs an act of moral emancipation for the most part and to some extent an act of imitation. The third person that walks away performs an act of moral emancipation but a little bit more imitation. In other words, the ratio between genuine moral emancipation or, or spiritual emancipation and mimesis uh, shifts as we get fewer, you know, as we get later and later in the process. So at the very end, the last few people that are trailing away are just following the crowd the same way they got there. By that time, it's politically correct. You see? not victimizing has become politically correct. When you say a mimetic process would, in, would result in stoning and, what, and after Jesus has his effect on the crowd, there's also a mimetic process involved in not stoning, it's important to make a very important distinction. Not stoning is better than stoning. It doesn't mean, oh, well, we're still stuck with mimesis. Of course we're stuck with mimesis. There's no way not to be stuck with mimesis. We shouldn't even regard it as being stuck. We need it. We need models. We need to follow examples. That's the way we are. It's a lot better to follow, to be at the tail end, you know, to be just part of the crowd following the non-stoners 
than it is to be part of the crowd following the stoners. It's a moral revolution. But the point that Gerard makes, I think it's absolutely brilliant. And obvious, it's one that's it's so typical of the, his commentaries on these things. It's so obvious, you wonder, why has it taken us 2,000 years to see it? The point is that that, too, is involved in this story and in human history. This story, in a way, is an encapsulation of human history after the biblical revelation. The biblical revelation has the effect of creating a gap, of... of reminding us that we are all victimizers, or as Paul heard the voice of Christ say, why are you persecuting me? We are reminded that we too are persecutors, and we, and we begin to find those people who turn away from it and try to go in another direction. We find them worthy of emulation, and that's a perfectly okay thing. Well, for instance, I just used the word politically correct. Well, you may, you may have noticed I'm not the first to have used it. Now, the first person to have used that word exercised some moral courage. The second person, a little bit of moral courage, a little bit of mimesis. By the time it gets to me this morning, there's a whole lot of mimesis and not a whole lot, not very much moral courage. You see, and I'm not apologizing for that. It's simply a fact of life. It didn't cost me a nickel to use that term. If I was a, if I was a, 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 a tenure, an a, a untenured professor on tenure track in, in 1988, it might not have been the thing to say. You see what I'm saying? I can eat, it doesn't mean a thing. I can say it and we all get it. I'm just using that as an example. So that when we recognize we can walk away from these things, but the first person to walk away from the, from the sort of social consensus, uh, t it takes more courage. Okay, very quickly. Jesus was left alone with the woman who remained standing there. He looked up and said, woman, where are they? And she said, uh, he says, has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, sir. He says, neither do I condemn you. Go away and don't sin anymore. He doesn't condemn her. He doesn't, he doesn't exonerate her. It's not a question of this being a, a trial about how morally virtuous her life has been. That's not the issue. It was never the issue. And there's some confusion that creeps in here, you know. When we, when we decide we don't want to victimize anymore, the romantic notion that creeps in is that these victims must be innocent because of some morally or culturally or socially or historically that they are the innocent ones. You see, this is the kind of, again, Rousseau-esque idea of who's, you know, the innocence of, of the ones that have always been victimized. There's no sense the Gospels are, and the biblical text is entirely too candid to support that kind of thing. The innocence of the victim is a structural thing, not a moral thing. And so Jesus is not saying, oh, well, I knew you wouldn't do such a nasty thing. He didn't say that. He said, go away and don't do it anymore. It's not the point. Well, I just want to do something very quickly on the Good Shepherd discourse. There's something in Ezekiel 34 where Ezekiel talks about the shepherds of Israel. It's an exilic prophecy, you know, and the shepherds of Israel have not done their work and so on. And... Uh, 
mostly what they have done is that they have not uh, taken care of the weak and the outcast and the suffering and the sick and the so on and so forth. And this shepherds of Israel has always referred to the kings, you know, and the, uh, the powerful. And the, the, the prophets often question their, the shepherding of the shepherds. Well, so that's the, that's the biblical background of it. I would say the reason I bring the shepherd, good shepherd discourse into this discussion of this little story of the woman caught in adultery is because I think the shepherd's role socially and culturally has always been to choreograph the sacrificial passions of his culture and direct it, as I've said this morning so many times, towards expendable victims and so on. And I think we have to see the Good Shepherd discourse in John in the, in, as that as a background. And it almost presents that as a background internally because remember that thing in chapter 5 about the paralytic who was cured? Uh, Jesus met him at the sheep gate, at the pool near the sheep gate. The sheep gate was the gate in the wall of Jerusalem through which the sheep were led and then held in a holding area the sheep that were to be sacrificed on the altar. So it was, it, it's the entry point for the victims of the sacrificial regime. So when in the, in the gospel there's mention of sheep, we shouldn't think that it refers to, you know, this bleating conformity. You see, that's what we think. Oh, sheep, they're all sheep. That's some kind of nonsense. The most important reference to sheep in the, in the New Testament is sacrificial. The sheep, sheep are the sacrificial animals par excellence. So that, that's, the most, that's the first reference. And as a matter of fact, it's fairly clear that sacrifice is, gives birth to animal husbandry just as it gives birth to all other cultural arrangements. The reason we started keeping animals is so that we could pre prepare them properly for the sacrificial altar. You see, a sacrificial animal partakes of the sacred. It must be somehow set off in the way that when we're in, the, in, a, in a world that's sacrificing humans, uh, they sacrifice the firstborn or virgins or something so that it's always the special pure one that is sacrificed. Likewise with animals, they have to be unblemished or whatever. So the sacri the, in, in the midst of anthropological time, the needs for sacrificial purity and for the maintenance of the di distinction between the profane and the sacred required a special care with the animals that were going to be sacrificed. That's the origin of animal husbandry. So we shouldn't think of all these shepherds and all these flocks and all of that as simply having, being part of some agricultural phenomenon. It is, of course. But the gospel, I think, is more, more importantly read anthropologically. It's part of some sacrificial thing. After all, it was John who introduced Jesus at the very beginning and said he is the Lamb of God who's going to take away the sin of the world. That's the kind of reference. So it's, that's the background. So it's, that's the background. Jesus says, he begins this discourse by saying, I tell you most solemnly, anyone who does not enter the sheepfold through the sheep gate but gets in some other way is a thief and a brigand. 
Okay, now you enter it through the gate. How do you enter it through the gate? As one of the sacrificial animals. Now, this is not said, and I'm, this is overdrawing it slightly, but only slightly. He says, the one who enters through the gate is the shepherd of the flock. The gatekeeper lets him in. The sheep hear his voice. One by one he calls his own sheep and leads them out. And leads them out. And they follow him because they know his voice. The shepherd becomes the sheep. I mean, the, the shepherd enters into the sheepfold, which is the place where the sheep are made ready for the altar, in the same way that the sheep does. And he leads them out. He calls them because they recognize him as one of them. And he calls them out. He says the others come in a different way. They are thieves and brigands. Who comes in a different way? If I'm correct in suggesting that one who comes in through the gate is a victim, then who are the thieves and brigands? The thieves and brigands are all of those who manipulate the system by simply redirecting its sacrificiality, which is exactly in all those stories I try to tell today what happens. You redirect it towards a more expendable victim. And, he, and this discourse is saying those are revolutionaries, perhaps, at, at at, at best. But what does a revolutionary do? He simply turns the thing. He doesn't transform it, he just turns it in a different direction. It revolves, but it doesn't transform. The, the word brigands means insurrectionist, by the way, so that's where that idea of, of revolutionary comes in. There's one other beside thieves and brigands, and that's the hired man. And he says the hired man is not the shepherd. And the sheep do not belong to him. He abandons the sheep and runs away as soon as he sees the wolf coming. So the hired man is some functionary, I would say some functionary, who tries his best to rehabilitate a certain victim, you know, because he's responding in his own funny way to this, to this need not to, not to continue this system. But he can only rehabilitate this victim at the expense of the other one towards whom he now directs the sacrificial passion, right? So he's just a hired man. He's not really leading people out. And Jesus says, I, on the contrary, am the good shepherd. And how, who is the good shepherd? Here's the definition of the good shepherd. The good shepherd is the one who lays down his life for the sheep. In other words, the difference between the sheep, that is to say the victim, and the shepherd disappears. Here is a shepherd who is himself a victim. And he will lead the sheep out of the sheepfold. I lay down my life for my sheep. Now he says, there's this little thing, and I just, I don't want, there's so many things in here we could deal with and it's getting late, but there's a little passage where he says, and there are other sheep I have, I have that are not of this fold, and these I, ha I have to lead as well. They too listen to my voice, and there will be only one flock and one shepherd. Unanimously, the exegetes say, and I don't quarrel with them, that this refers to the other Christian communities. The jo Johannine community recognizes its singularity. It recognizes that it's marginal theologically in the late first century. And it recognizes that sooner or later it will have to come into koinonia or communion with the other Christian communities. I don't quarrel with that a bit. But I think at another level, at an anthropological level, this passage means more. There are other sheep that are not of the, this fold, and these I have to lead as well. They too listen to my voice, 
and there will be one flock and one shepherd. And I think this has to be seen anthropologically as referring to all other religions. Uh, in, all religions, I should say, including Christianity. That is to say, it's, it's of a piece in my mind with Jesus saying, when I am lifted up, I will draw all of humanity to myself. That the one who takes the victim's place and, and uh, uh, is crucified will become, that the, that, the, that the moral force of that revelation will begin to have effects everywhere, in every culture, in every religious tradition. It, will, it, it, it lets loose a force on the world that is so profound and irresistible and revolutionary that everyone will be affected. Now, this does not mean that, everyone will, that people will abandon their Hinduism and become Christians or whatever. I don't know what it means. But I think, I do feel very strongly that it means that this revelation will change everything. Now, when it, everything is changed, there may, they, there may still be religions called Christianity, Judaism, Hinduism, Buddhism. I don't know. I don't know about that. But I, I, I feel that the gospel's audacity is, is uh, reliable in that way. I think human history uh, suggests that it is. And then he says, I and the Father are one. He says, I and the Father are one. They pick up stones. And he says, well, those are just words. Well, could, how about some other ones? You want to try on some other ones? Three verses later, he says, I, he says, I am the Son of God. And he says, I know that still troubles you. You still want to accuse me of blasphemy. Those are just words. Let's try some more. The Father is in me and I am in the Father. What do you want? These are words. And he says, if you don't believe in me, believe in what I'm doing. I'm doing the Father's work. You can recognize the Father in my work, not in my words. It doesn't matter. I and the Father are one. That's true. But if it bothers you, how about I'm the Son of God? That's true too. If that bothers you, how about, I'm in the Father and the Father's in me? These are words. I think that relates thematically to somewhat to this question of the sheep gate because we have a breakdown in this gospel between, between uh, we have someone who is indistinguishable, we have a son indistinguishable from the Father, we have a shepherd indistinguishable from the sheep, we have a Lord indistinguishable from a brother. I have a friend in the Netherlands who doesn't use the word religion with respect to Christianity. He uses only the word faith. And uh, he, he feels that Christianity, when it's living up to its calling, is not a religion but a faith. And for him there's a difference. I'm not sure I would go all the way with this because the way we use the word religion in ordinary life I don't think leaves out what Christians do so I wouldn't maybe be quite as as uh, scrupulous about the use of the word but I, I think my friend has a very important point and if we could just adopt those that distinction without really defining what it is for the moment the distinction between faith and religion or let's say between faith and conventional religion 
the story in chapter 9 of John's Gospel of the man born blind and the story in chapter 11 of, the, of Lazarus raised from the dead, I think are stories that the evangelist has used in order to talk about the difficulty of stepping out of religion into faith and staying there. The story of the man born blind is the story of the difficulty of stepping out of religion into faith and the story of Lazarus being raised from the dead is a story of the difficulty of staying outside the orbit of conventional religion, resisting the impulse to fall back into it. In any event, that's how I'd like to proceed in the, some reflections on them. We can read all these stories at more or less three levels. One is the whatever event may have occurred in the life of the historical Jesus, which was remembered by uh, the early Christians. The second is the way in which the evangelist has chosen to use this memory in order to make a point about issues that are, that are important for him in his time. The evangelist, of course, gospel is concerned in these stories, particularly the first story we're going to look at today, is concerned about the tensions between synagogue Judaism and Christian faith in the late first century. So we have a historical event or some memory of a historical event. We have the evangelist reworking of that or retelling of that in order to shed light on, a, on an issue that's, that's important for his community. And then we have the larger question of what this story means in, in, a, in a universal setting, or let's say we, have the, we can read the story at the, level, at the anthropological level, uh, at the level of what it says to us about uh, our own existence and experience. So let me introduce the story of the man born blind by going over a few of the things that were that made it such a powerful story for the Johannine community. The most important event for Christians and Jews of the first century was the destruction of the of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple uh, in roughly the year 70 A.D. As a result of that, there was a Jewish uprising which the Romans put down uh, violently and destroyed the temple. As a result of that, uh, uh, Jews of the late first century experienced a kind of internal exile. They, they had the experience that they had had in Babylonian exile, namely that their culture was uh, seriously threatened with, uh, with being erased, being destroyed. And in situations like that, one expects what happens, namely that they became very concerned about holding on to what there was and very uh, intolerant of, of uh, slipshod, what, what, they would, what the Orthodox Jews would have regarded as slipshod uh, versions of the tradition. They were in no mood for heresies or apostasy of one form or another. The, the, the determination to stick to the Orthodox tradition became quite fierce after the destruction of the temple for obvious reasons. As John's writing this story, 
there are still quite a number of Christians, particularly outside of his own community, who have who re retained their synagogue affiliation and go to uh, uh, still regard themselves as Jews, but simply Jews who regard Jesus as the Messiah, and uh, they there has been no f fundamental break between uh, Judaism and Christianity up until the year of, of, about the year ninety, and in that year. This, there, there was inserted, uh, or there was a change made in the in the twelfth blessing. There were eighteen blessings that were read at the synagogue services, and the twelfth blessing was altered so that it was a curse on the Nazarenes, and the Na and that was a, a name applied to the Christians, uh, uh, regarded as heretics by by uh, Jewish the Jewish Orthodoxy. So. People who came to the synagogue thereafter had to curse the Nazarenes. This is in a world which regards curses as serious, so that those who didn't open their mouth to utter the curse were, were fell under the judgment. They were they stood out as Christians and they were expelled. So there's a tremendous tension going on, and clearly this story of the man born blind is is trying to shine light on that dilemma. As far as the author of the Gospel of John is concerned, the attempt to remain within synagogue Judaism and proclaim one's Christian faith was doomed to failure because if one remained inside the conventional religion of the time, one could never come to a, the, the deepest possible understanding of the, of the meaning of Jesus' life or as we now talk about it, the, the true Christological significance of Jesus' life could not be fully appreciated by someone who remained inside the orbit of first century Judaism. So that's what, that's what the evangelist is trying to do in this story that, has, that he has obviously inherited from the tradition. So I'll just go over it very quickly. I want to spend most of the time on the Lazarus story, but I'll go over this very quickly. Uh, as Jesus went along, he saw a man who had been blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, for him to have been born blind? Neither he nor his parents sinned, Jesus answered. He was born blind so that the works of God might be displayed in him. So immediately you have the question we've talked about in earlier sessions of, the link between physical or mental, for that matter, social, moral affliction and one's moral status. This man has been born blind, meaning he suffers an affliction, meaning all affliction is a punishment from God. Therefore, it must be a punishment for something, his transgression or that of his parents. So the question is, was it his parents or was it, was it this man? This is like, have you stopped beating your wife? There's no alternative to these two uh, answers. It's got to be one or the other. And Jesus says, of course, it's neither. His affliction, he reinterprets affliction or suffering. He said the purpose of affliction or suffering is not that God is punishing somebody, but that God is providing others with an opportunity to show God's mercy in the world. So that's a radical reinterpretation of meaning of suffering. We might today, in today's world, by the way, the, this this if we were rewriting this story for today's world, this man would surely be suffering from AIDS, or something like that. 
which would involve, uh, might involve the same kind of moral judgment and uh, so on. Anyway, so Jesus says, as long as the day lasts, I must carry out the work of the one who sent me. The night will soon be here when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So this man is born blind. He cannot see the light. There's only one light to be seen as far as John is concerned, and that is the, the, the light it takes to recognize the Messiah for who he is and for what he is. So the fact that this man is blind now becomes a metaphysical uh, point for, for the evangelist. One is blind, fundamentally blind, not because one cannot physically see, but because one cannot see the revelation of the meaning of Jesus' life. He is the light of the world. So, having said, I am the light of the world, he spat on the ground, made a paste with a spittle, put it over the eyes of the blind man, said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam. So the blind man went off, washed himself, came away, seeing. This is obviously a very old story that John has inherited. You know, there's a story in, when, in, in Mark when Jesus cures the blind man. He, again, uses spittle. But Matthew and Luke have discreetly eliminated this reference, no doubt in order to avoid any implication of primitive magic or something. Uh, but John is the most, uh, the most metaphysical, the most theological evangelist but in a number of places, he's also the most concrete. He doesn't, he doesn't flinch when it comes to this. So right after he says, Jesus says, I am the light of the world, this sweeping theological statement. He has Jesus putting spittle and, and mud on this man's eyes. So it's this amazing combination in John of, this, of, of, the, of the tangible and, and primitive in the sense of a of, of, of very early memory of Jesus' healing. 